My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to a West Coast Kramer good takeover. I'd be want to make friends. Me, I'm out here in California to help you make some money. It's my job as just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is tech in trouble? Have the stocks gotten too expensive? Do we need to worry about what might happen to the group if President Trump can't find common ground with President Xi of China and the tariffs get jacked up in December, which is certainly now the thought? With the market at such lofty levels, even after a day where the Dow dipped 102 points, S&P backslid 0.06%, the Nasdaq gained 0.24%, it's something a lot of money managers are talking about. Today, Bank of America Merrill put it out pretty succinctly in a cleverly titled piece called Changes about how to reposition for 2020. And the big takeaway was that it is time to lighten up on my favorite group, which is technology. Their thesis, the analysts were worried about the trade war shifting to a tech war after the election. Chinese companies only buying from Chinese suppliers. American companies only buying from non-Chinese suppliers. Plus, you've also got the strong dollar to worry about. And with tech rallying lately, you've got a crowd of weak-handed shareholders who head for the hills at the first sign of trouble. So are they right? Now, we can't dismiss this argument out of hand. We've heard some genuinely discouraging things from major players in technology. I mean, look, just last week, Cisco... It gave a downbeat forecast for precisely the reasons that Bank of America Merrill cited. Even though I think the stock represents good value here, good dividend, good balance sheet, some okay growth, investors have soured on it, especially some of the big guys, because CEO Chuck Robbins and CFO Kelly Kramer actually told a pretty grim story about the future. However, I think it would be a big mistake to give up on the whole tech sector here, and I'm going to tell you why. First and most importantly, there's no tech in tech. All right, what I mean by that? Listen to me. When I got into this business decades ago, there wasn't much tech at all. You had some semiconductor companies, some defense contractors, IBM, and five of their competitors known as Bunch, Burroughs, Univac, NCR, Control Data, and Honeywell. This was back when the mainframe was still king. Big iron, we called it. By the mid-'80s, birth of personal computer, explosion of information technology companies, and their enablers, all worth owning. Then in the 90s, we got the Internet boom, and that's when things started to change. Suddenly, tech stocks weren't necessarily in the tech business, something that's only become more pronounced over time. These days, the whole idea of the tech sector itself, I find it misleading. For instance, we have Square on tonight. That's a payment processing play that helps make millions of small businesses competitive with larger ones. Is that tech? We had Levi's on last night. They designed new tech to make more personalized jeans without a lot of despoilage of the world and using a lot less water. Hey, that sounds like tech to me. Shopify? It makes it possible for small operators to sell things on the web. Retail or tech? What about something like Twitter? Or how about video games? I mean, that technology is chock full with the most sophisticated chips we have. But is that a media business or tech? How about the hardware that powers them? Is tech still tech if it's in the garage, if it's in the living room, the kitchen, the bedroom? Most important, where do we categorize the software as a service place? Like ServiceNow, which just was added to the S&P 500 and vaulted big. Or Adobe, which went from being a digital publishing play to an e-commerce juggernaut. Or, yes, the company that is the reason why we're out here, Salesforce.com. I mean, Salesforce.com practically invented the industry with its customer relations management software platform. 
I don't know if we would have called that tech a few years ago. You've got billions and billions and billions of dollars of software sales that I don't think to be contained by the rubric tech. Certainly not the ones that you're supposed to sell because Bank of America Merrill says lighten up. When I think about that piece, when I think about the things they're worried about, they may apply to hardware, specialized hardware. But they don't have much to do with the software as a service base. Something like Salesforce isn't really driven by international trade. It's driven by its own indispensability, the word I want you to think about. Indispensability to other businesses that need to digitize or die. Indispensability is the driving force, not miniaturization, but making it so that you can compute and trade in a way that makes it so that you can stay alive as a business. Sure, their stocks will get hit if President Trump tweets something like, yes, quote, I am sick and tired of my good friend President Xi, and I am taking Chinese tariffs up 30% in two weeks because he won't even buy pork to keep his people fed, end quote. Hey, you know what? That actually sounds like a tweet that he'd make, the real Donald Trump. In fact, these stocks will probably be the first to go down again because the algorithms that we're so ruled by sell them on any trade worries. But after that, their stocks tend to come bouncing back with lack because these companies are forces of nature. All right, let me put these tech uh, worries in perspective. This morning, Kohl's, KSS, a department store chain that mistakenly my charitable trust had, had, well, not a big position, but owned a position, reported what I regard as a massively disappointing quarter. Although to listen to management, you think that they had some sort of blowout. They were congratulating themselves. It was a head scratcher, which is something I advise you not to do if you have as much spray-painted makeup on or you'll get a lot of dirt on your fingernails. I think Kohl's is in an existential crisis, frankly. Uh, It's gone full Jean-Paul Sartre. You don't pronounce the R-E. We're in a period of monumental turmoil for retail where the only real survivors will be the companies that dominate in the off-price space or the ones that dominate online. Kohl's? KSS? Kiss me, stupid? It does neither. It has to find a way to either become the lowest cost seller, which I don't think it has the ability to do, or it has to spend fortunes to develop a digital strategy that's good enough to compete with Walmart or Target or Amazon. And I don't think they think they need to. After listening to today's call, I don't think it's possible because management seems to be in total denial about how much it needs to spend on tech before it can even get in the game. They think they're doing great. Hey, when you're doing great and you're not. Well, that's how your stock gets. Get, that's how it goes down 20% like it did today. But the lesson here is simple. If you want to stay competitive in retail, you need to pay these software as a service companies a fortune. Yeah, you got to write them big checks. That's why I rebel against this idea that you need to lighten up on tech because it, it's because there's too many people who own it. I mean, it's a club too crowded. I mean, come on. The tariffs will hurt. No, indispensability. How about the biggest companies on earth, Microsoft and Apple? Worry about those? Microsoft remains omnipresent, but they've done such a good job of diversifying away from the plain old PC business that I can't imagine their numbers being hurt that much by China. It's Azure is really the king there. That's right. They're, uh, they're cloud business. Apple? Trade will always be an issue with Apple because they can't afford to turn their backs on roughly 1.5 billion people in China. But Apple's managed to thread the needle during the trade war because they've created millions upon millions of jobs in both countries, and it has the confidence of both leaders. In short, they may just be able to transcend the whole conflict. Wow, hats off to Tim Cook. Oh, let's not forget the rest of Fang. There's Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, Netflix. These companies have no Chinese exposure to speak of. And when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Thank you, Bob Dylan, at least in earnings per share. So here's the bottom line. If you feel compelled to sell tech, ask yourself what you're selling. If you're dumping an ETF, 
be my guest. Those are just moronic amalgams of stocks slapped together by people who make a living by convincing you that the tech sector is a real cohesive thing. But if you're dumping the kind of tech stocks that are working here, especially the better run softwares and service names, I think you make a big mistake. And one that you'll regret when this trade war eventually blows over. And it will. Wes in North Carolina. Wes. Hi, Jim. Love what you do. Thank you. Uh, my stock is Snap, and the stock's up 9% recently and on top of some fairly decent gains. What are your near-term versus long-term thoughts? Okay, I think that uh, Snap is, is what I regard as got a scarcity problem. There's just not enough Snaps out there. You need to be able to reach that demographic. They've got that demographic, talking speaking younger people, and that's why I think that the franchise is worth a lot. Wish they didn't have so many different classes of stock. They wish that they didn't have a class of stock that made it so you can't uh, take it over. Because, boy, they sure should be. All right, don't give up on the whole of tech here. If you're compelled to sell, ask yourself, what are you selling? But please don't dump the kind of tech that's working out here in San Francisco that we've been profiling for you. I'll make money tonight from CNBC One Market. Warren Buffett is betting on restoration hardware. Should you do the same? I'm sitting down with the CEO of the luxury furniture retail. Then Salesforce has grown Dreamforce from 1,300 attendees in 2003 to more than 170,000 in a pilgrimage to San Francisco. What tech trends can be uncovered from the cloud's biggest conference? I've got the exclusive with co-CEO Mark Benioff. And then with NVIDIA declining a tad today. Is it prime time to buy? You know how I feel. Well, let's talk to the CEO to find out. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. One of the hottest stocks in the last six months isn't a technology company. It's a retailer, although I really hate using that word when it comes to this company because it's so much more than that. I'm talking about RH, the high-end furniture chain forming this restoration hardware with a stock that's more than doubled since late May. I've always been a big fan of this, as is, unfortunately, for my bankroll, my wife. And last week, we found out that Warren Buffett is, too, as Berkshire Hathaway just disclosed a major 6.5% stake in the company. Hey, making him the fifth largest shareholder. In response, of course, the stock surged to new highs. Today, pulled back about 2.9%. Could this be your moment to buy? You know, I think. But let's check in with Gary Friedman. He's the brilliant chairman and CEO of RH. Learn more about how his company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Friedman, welcome back to Man Money. Thanks, Jim. Good Gary, to be here. It has to be a thrill. Isn't it a thrill when you read that Warren Buffett took a big position? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, when the, when the Oracle somehow finds your company in, you know, all the companies in the world, I, we, we think we've done a lot of good work over the years. And, um, you know, every now and then I'll get reached out by a lot of people. I've never got so many people call or text me about an event ever in the history of my career. Well, it's, it's deserving because he likes to find companies that have moats that are unassailable. And you've obviously built one. Well, we believe we're building one. You know, and, and uh, you know, look, Berkshire is one of those um, businesses that we I've talked about that we ad- greatly admire and we study. And you know, there's kind of three three companies that that we kind of model ourselves after mm-hmm. uh, Apple and LVMH and Berkshire Hathaway and Apple from the perspective that it's a uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to build a kind of an integrated ecosystem of products, places, mm-hmm. services, and spaces that all 
kind of amplify and render our brand more valuable. And uh, like LVMH, we're building a luxury platform. Right. And as Bernard Arnault says, uh, luxury goods uh, are the only places possible to make luxury margins. And uh, we believe we're on a path to do that. And uh, like Berkshire Hathaway, um, uh, you know, we're building a business that's really capital efficient, generates significant cash flow, uh, enjoys a low cost of capital, and is generating industry-leading returns. So um, uh, somehow we showed up on the radar, and we're, we're just proud. Well, have you ever been to the Nebraska Furniture Mart? I mean, which is supposed to have unbelievable uh, dollars per square foot. Of course I've been there. You have? Yeah, yeah of course I've been there. Uh, we, we, we look at everybody. I mean, whether... whether you know, whether somebody's a direct competitor or not, uh, anybody that has any level of success or something to learn from. So uh, we've, we've walked the entire thing. Yeah. OK, now yeah. this this conference call uh, did not include the fact that you're with Buff. I would have loved that hear that. But this is the first time we've seen it because yeah. I didn't know you had any association. I mean, obviously, if you studied this model, you've learned a great deal about what he's done, which has had really good prices. Uh, but you also are not for the masses. That's a little bit more of a mass outfit, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. I think it's the it's the highest volume furniture store in the world. It is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to learn from that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. In this conference call, you spent a lot of time talking about China, and not just the way people are saying. You've been saying last time last time we saw each other was in February at the unbelievable store that's right. the gallery downtown, and and you you said on air that you bought stock, of course. 50% made right then when you said it because you told me, listen, we're not the stock that people think it is or the company think it is in terms of being hostage to China. That's not what you are. Yeah, no, look, I, I think, I mean, you, you know, if you just take a step back, uh, there's a major trade imbalance. Um, it's, it's important to correct that trade imbalance. We're funding China's growth. Uh, and, um, you know, so we don't look at it. I mean, look, there's there's always episodic things like this mm-hmm. you have to deal with. Um, you know, we're we're taking the appropriate steps, whether it's sourcing some of our product outside of China. Um, I, I think it's going to it's going to all work out. You know, China is still going to be a, a supplier to the U.S. Right. And, um, you know, and, and look, they 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 make some of the greatest product in the world as, as much as people want to joke around made in China. You know, almost every iPhone's made in China. Right. And it's one of the best products in the world. So, um Look, I think you, uh, you know, there, again, we, we try not to overreact to, to kind of what we believe are episodic kind of uh, things that happen in the business that are outside of our control. We, you know, we, we react as, as we see necessary, but we take a long-term view. Long-term, well, we think China is still part of the mix. I think it's important. One, at one point, you do say that Trump is a master negotiator, use those terms, uh, and you talk about the art of the deal. At no point do you say, hey, listen, it's not that good for shareholders if we have high tariffs. It, it seems as if this is something that you just say, look, we're going to do well, regardless. You do not plead. Like so many other retailers, you do not plead poverty. You do not say, wow, we can't pull it off. you got to help us. That's not in your style. No. Look, everybody's got to compete in any market condition, and, and that's how, how we think about it. And, um, look, at, at the end of the day, um, uh, like I, I, I tell someone, look, the, no one talks about the, the incoming money that's coming into the United States from tariffs, right? We, we, we have um, – uh, you know, the highest stock market we've ever had. We have the lowest, you know, un- uh, lowest unemployment we've had, and we have the longest economic expansion in the history of the United States of America. It's not that Hate him or like him. Yeah. Right? Hate him or like him. Well, well, yeah, for, forget about it, it, whether you like Trump or not. I mean, I, I just look at kind of the results of what's happening in our economy, and I think there's a lot of good things happening in our economy. And, um, and I think long-term, 
you know, some of the short-term pain is going to be worth the long-term okay. gain. Now, one of the most amazing things is to hear about a whole continent that is waiting for RH. You took a trip to Milan. You had a lot of things happen in your head about what can go next. Yeah, we, we have a, a completely new view of the world. I, and I think it's, it's funny. I, I joke around and I say, you know, sometimes we're, we're just dumb Americans, right? We've we built a business in America. We see America. It's a big country. Tons of opportunities here. And, and uh, this doesn't um, uh, mean we're going to lose a focus on, on America because we can we probably get to five billion, maybe five, maybe six billion now as we Ooh, we look at what the target. opportunity is. Yeah, as we look at the opportunity in North America. But when you really motor up and you see the whole world and you start just looking at the math, and uh, you know, I talked about L- LVMH being the largest luxury platform, whether it's LVMH, Hermes, uh, you know, Gucci, the Richmond Group, um, only twenty five percent, roughly twenty five percent of all those brands' business is in America because. They didn't start in America. Right. So they have a global view. So I, I've said to our team, like, look, we, we've got to motor up and have a global view. Don't be the dumb Americans that only <laughs> see America. And now, now we've done the math and we've looked at it, I think, pretty clearly. And we think, we think two-thirds to three-fourths of our business can be outside of America. And if, and if you do the math on that, you say, hey, if we can be $5 billion, $6 billion in America, we could be a you know, $20, $25 billion company. And that's only with the existing part of our ecosystem. $25 billion, that means there's a lot of runway. Oh, tons of runway, but that's only with the existing part of our ecosystem. I think when we start to articulate the, the bigger vision for RH and the, the, you know, the integration of, of products, places, services, and spaces, which you're starting to see with our interior design right. business, um, you'll hear us talk about in the future possibly architecture, possibly mm-hmm. landscape architecture, and a services platform. Um, you know, we're going to have, I mean, it's, I haven't talked about it publicly yet, but it's gotten out there in the real estate trust. But people ask me, I hear you opening a hotel in New York, and I say no. Oh, I hear you opening a boutique hotel in New York, and I say no. And they say, well, what are you doing? I say a guest house. And so the guest house will all be right. the next part of the ecosystem, um, which um, all intended to kind of elevate the RH brand yeah. and position us as thought leaders and tastemakers as a design platform. It's working. And congratulations on your new big shareholder. It's most deserving for a person who's changed the retail landscape. That's Gary Friedman. He's the chairman and CEO of RH. I think under 190, you're getting another chance. Man, money's back after the break. Thanks, Jim. come out to San Francisco for Salesforce's Dreamforce Conference. It's a celebration of all the ways that the cloud is transforming both business and your day-to-day life. Couldn't come at a better time, given that Salesforce stock finally got its group back over the last few weeks. Now, earlier today, just as Dreamforce was getting going, I got a chance to speak with a man who makes this all possible. I'm talking about Mark Benioff. He's the founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Salesforce. Take a look. Mark, 171,000 people, most ever, they come out to Dreamforce. Why? Jim, this is uh, the industry's biggest tech user conference. All these customers are participating in the Salesforce economy. Uh, They have jobs in the economy. They're here to get trained. They're here to learn new things. They're here to meet each other. They're also here to get get entertained and have a good time. You have often said that tech creates jobs. Stop worrying about all the jobs that it takes away. 
you actually have some numbers this time around about what the Salesforce economy does. Well, you're absolutely right, Jim. You know, we're creating a $1 trillion economy. You can already see that that is fully underway. Millions of jobs, millions of people who are participating in the Salesforce ecosystem. And we're absolutely 100% committed to making sure that everybody can join this new economy. That's why we built Trailhead, so we can reskill and retrain. And many of the people who are here have actually learned their skills online at Trailhead. Dot com. That's why we built Trailhead, right. so they can participate in this economy. Now, people have to understand, well, it's not necessarily a trade show. When I walked downstairs, I saw a very beautiful exhibit for State Farm. Now, that's a, some people think a boring insurer, but it actually had a kind of a cradle-to-grave approach about how you can use insurance powered by you. Well, Jim, you're absolutely right. There are 2,700 sessions here at Dreamforce, and I expect you to attend every single one of them. There's also a huge trade show that shows what all of our customers and partners are doing with this technology, with this economy, like you said. And with State Farm, well, we're providing that customer 360-degree experience for them. That is the Salesforce customer success platform, helping them manage their sales, their service, their marketing, their commerce, their apps, all the integration of their data. This is what we're doing for State Farm and for so many others. And to, uh, let's say, plow through it, make some sense of it, do we need Einstein? Well, we definitely need Einstein. I think you just woke him up. Oh, there he is. Hey, Einstein, what's my forecast? You can now talk directly to Einstein. It's kind of amazing. You woke him up by talking. It's actually a partnership with us and Amazon. We've built this amazing smart speaker, but the speaker is actually talking to the customer 360, so you're able to find out how is your forecast, how are you doing, what is going on, it's incredible. What's 360 Truth? Well, 360 Truth is another amazing thing that we're introducing here. That has been the holy grail of computing, Jim, what we call SSOT, the single source of truth. We've had three amazing waves of computing. Systems of record, we've talked about that. Systems of engagement, we've talked about that. Systems of intelligence, including AI, we've talked about that. Now we're entering the fourth stage of computing. It's the pursuit of single source of truth. And we've built that into our platform. Now, this is a computer science holy grail that we've been trying to put together for a long time. Okay. But now, because we acquired MuleSoft, because we acquired Tableau, we are closer to providing for our customers the single source of truth for their customer information. There's another side of truth, which is the uh, trailblazer side, which is the book side, which is how you feel that not everybody's invested equally in the concept of truth out here, what makes people understand the importance of truth and, in other cases, not think it's important? Well, Jim, we've talked about this also for years, where but we so... Just, do you know what's just dawning on people? Do you know what people say to me? You know, your friend Ben, if he's talking about truth, i got to get in on that. I mean, that's a, I'm not kidding. It, 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 you may have thought that we've been talking about it for years. David Blaine, who I bumped into, of course, along with President Obama, not yet, may think about truth, but... People are just starting to wake up to the idea that it matters. Jim, if you bought our stock in 2004 when we went public, you'd have a 3,500% return. You know that. You talk about that on your show all the time. It's a great shareholder return, but we're not just about shareholders. We're also about stakeholders, all stakeholders, which is why when we started the company 21 years ago, we put 1% of our equity, profit, and time into a charity or nonprofit. It was easy because we had no equity, profit, or time, right, no employees, right. nobody. But now we've been able to give away $400 million, 4 million hours of volunteerism. 
We run 40,000 nonprofits for free on our system, and we also are a net zero company. We have no carbon emissions. We also will be fully renewable by 2025 because the planet is a key stakeholder. We just talked about that with the new book. Do you think that uh, investors now, younger investors, want to check those boxes? They want that as much as they want earnings per share growth? Well, I think everybody wants that, Jim. I think investors, I know you think about investors all the time. I think about all stakeholders, my customers, my partners, my employees, my investors, the citizens of my city, where I do business. All of them are my stakeholders. I hold them all in my heart. That is what I do as a CEO, certainly as the CEO of the largest employer in San Francisco. Everyone is in my heart here, including our homeless. This is managing for all stakeholders, not just for all shareholders. Have you been able to convince some CEOs who may have been on the other side of some of these we call truth issues to join the uh, the lighter side, leave the darker side? Because I don't want to just say, you know what, so-and-so is a cancer. Because some, we, are, we can conquer cancer. Are there some CEOs we can conquer and bring over to the light side? Well, I think the most exciting thing that's happened, Jim, is the business roundtable which is the 200 top CEOs in the country, just said they are now about all stakeholders. And, of course, they have to adapt their management practices. They have to manage in a whole new way. But that is a huge moment because now business schools can modify their curriculum and teach not only how to manage for all shareholders, but for all stakeholders. And that's why I wrote this new book, Trailblazer, so that CEOs like myself, but many of my friends around the country, like the ones who are... Here at this show, like you mentioned, the CEO of State Farm, the CEO of Louis right. Vuitton, others How about the can manage CEO for all stakeholders. Former CEO of the country is here. What is former he going to talk CEO about? of the country is here talking about actually what he's doing of youth and empowering youth and youth empowerment, that's and that's so important. Now, what do we do when we say, wait a second, your stocks had a great run, but of late, as my friend David Faber said, you should say, you know, Mark, your stock's been stalled, so don't you think you should be worried more about that? I'm focused on two things, really. One is my customer success, you know, making sure all my customers are successful. That's why I'm looking into the eyes and hearts of every single customer here and asking them, are they successful? Are they happy? There's nothing more important to the business. And then the second thing that is so important to me is to make sure that I am managing exactly and saying what I'm doing, managing for my shareholders and my stakeholders. And then I'm going to let the stock take care of itself. Right. Just they're, they're as I have off, but I need you to for talk 21 about one years. Thing. Need you to talk about one thing: the importance of trees. Well, you know, if we want to sequester carbon, we know that we need more trees, and I hope that we'll be able to come back with a major program here on the show to talk about how we're going to get That's more carbon reduction out of the atmosphere. Because I didn't want to leave without talking about. We the did plant. have a good because conversation you, about carbon yes. sequestration, and it's just it's important. important. It's important. To we us. know that. All right. I want to thank Mark Benioff, Salesforce founder, chairman, and, C- and co-CEO. Mark, congratulations, 171,000 people. Thanks. Welcome to Dreamforce, Jim. Thank you. Look, happier here. Last week, NVIDIA reported what I consider to be a pretty darn good quarter. Since then, the stock's been seesawing. It seems like the market's a little confused. When you're dealing with a graphics maker, when you're dealing with a chip maker, when you're dealing with a very special semiconductor that's transforming video games, data center, autonomous driving, artificial intelligence, 
You got to give him the benefit of the doubt, for heaven's sake. Don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Jensen Wong. He's the visionary founder, president, and CEO of NVIDIA. Get a better read of the quarter and what he sees going. Jensen, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. We're taking this live from for you at Colorado from Denver, Colorado, Supercomputer 19. Well, Jensen, I've got to tell you, everyone was enthralled when we saw you at your headquarters. And people keep telling me, Jim, I understand you think it's the latest, the greatest GPU chip. But the one thing you don't do is you don't explain exactly in real time how valuable it is, what people do with it, and how mind-blowing it can be. So I said, I'm going to go see Jensen again, and he's going to tell us. You've got a great example of how mind-blowing what your technology is doing. Tell us about it. Well, we build computer technology that makes it possible for people to do things that otherwise is absolutely impossible. What you're looking at behind me is a Mars lander simulation with full fluid dynamics. You know, you know that we're going to go to Mars and by 2030 or so, mid-2030, and the Mars lander has to land in an atmosphere that's one one-hundredth that of the Earth. So we simulated the entire, and so in, in order to land, it's got to land with booster rockets instead of parachutes. And what you're looking at behind me is a real-time visualization of the fluid dynamic simulation of the Mars lander going through the atmosphere, trying to stop from 12,000 miles per hour down to zero in about six minutes. And so this, this simulation behind me is approximately the same, about 25,000 movies being rendered at exactly the same time. So, pretty exciting. <laughs> These are the kinds of things that I know you dream of that the rest of us can. And another thing you've made very clear is inference. You've got something that does 25,000 movies at once. You're doing inference. You're actually doing idiom. You've got machines that actually understand the way we speak. How is that possible? Well, you know, we're in the beginnings of the artificial intelligence revolution. What's really amazing is this. We now have computers that can learn by itself and write computer programs that no humans can write. And these gigantic programs, these gigantic programs are programmed essentially on a computer that we build that's standing right next to me. These programs have achieved some amazing breakthroughs. About 2012 or so, computer vision was achieved and we can now achieve superhuman levels of computer vision. As a result, self-driving cars, robotics, amazingly beautiful photographs you can take with phones. Now, we've created the ability for computers to understand natural language understanding, the code of human knowledge. And so this is a big, gigantic breakthrough. It's going to really change just by every industry we know. Now, in the last few uh, months since we've seen you, you have taken the video game business by storm again, this time with an iteration that's very much like what you just said, like which is lifelike, uh, which all the, the uh, companies that write programs are, are kind of just aghast. Uh, this thing dropped, and it seems to be, as Colette Crest said recently in a, a, your great CFO, in a speech, that it's just snowballing. And I know that Take-Two Interactive confirmed that to me just before I came out. It, this thing is just... Uh, the, became the industry standard overnight. Yeah, it took us, the, the algorithm for what is called ray tracing was invented some 35 years ago by one of our researchers. And it took until now for us to make it real time. Last year, we announced the NVIDIA RTX, a brand new way of doing computer graphics, where we're actually simulating light rays as it bounces around the room and affects by, affected by the different materials, reflecting and absorbed and and as a result, it looks photorealistic. 
this way of doing computer graphics is going to change the way we do computer graphics going forward. And we're so incredibly excited that, that it's just been a home run. Every game developer, every design studio, uh, design applications, creative applications have adopted NVIDIA RTX. And now we can see photorealistic rendering in real time coming to video games and, and of course, applications uh, all over the world. Now, one of the things that I, I find difficult, people say, Jim, uh, you like the stock of NVIDIA so much, and, and, and you like Jensen so much, and yet there they had a data center weakness, they had a little bit of glitch uh, when it came to crypt, cryptocurrencies. Jensen, can you please explain to people why, if you think about the company over every day, it doesn't go anywhere, whereas two or three years from now, you've guys got stuff that nobody else has, and that's the way we should be thinking about NVIDIA. Yeah, you know, last year this time, we really enjoyed the perfect storm in our company. Our graphics business was affected, our data, data business was affected. As a result, we went into a slowdown a bit. Well, we came roaring back, and this last quarter we had a great quarter. Graphics business grew, gaming business grew, our notebook business grew, our data center business grew because of artificial intelligence. We're looking at now one of the most powerful technology forces of all time what we all call artificial intelligence, where computers can learn and write software by itself. This implication is enormous. The ability to automate automation itself will have a tremendous impact in the computer industry, but all the industries that we know, whether it's self-driving cars or automated retail, warehouses with logistics robots, manufacturing robots that makes things that we can't make and make things more cost-effectively. Industry under industry, Healthcare, financial services will be really affect, will be really revolutionized by artificial intelligence and made more productive. We're in the beginning innings of it. Nvidia's processors is really the engine of artificial intelligence, and so I'm looking forward to years of expansion as we go from uh, what we call deep learning into the cloud, into all of these applications in the edge, intelligent edge, uh, up to autonomous vehicles and robots and service drones around the world. Well, one last question. I know that we uh, talk about the edge and how valuable it would be for you to be able to merge with Mellanox. You said on this, uh, on your most recent call, that you hope to get it done in the first quarter. NVIDIA with or without Mellanox, we're fine, right? I mean, because I, I don't want to tell people if this deal doesn't ever close that therefore NVIDIA is going to be handicapped. It would be a great thing for it to close, but we can't pin our... Uh, we, we, we really can't just, let's just say, uh, have hope that peace breaks out between China and us. It, are you concerned at all, or are we fine without Mellanox? Well, first of all, we're fine without Mellanox, and Mellanox is fine without NVIDIA. We have two great companies who are leaders in their space. One of the things that, 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 um, uh, that all of you should know is that the discussions are going fine, and the regulatory discussions are going fine, and we expected it to be uh, closed by the end of the year. It looks like it's going to be about the beginning of next year. It still might get done by the end of this year. And um, the thing that's really great is the combination of the two of us could innovate in the data center and create technologies otherwise it would be difficult doing separately. But two great companies that are world-class in their fields, and we're going to be fine separately. It's going to be amazing together. All right, terrific. Jensen, so great to see you as always. Congratulations on all of your success, and the comeback has been so terrific. Good to see you, sir. Thank you very much, Jim. Good to talk to you. Thank you to Jensen Baum, founder, president, and CEO of NVIDIA. The stock is taking off because the company's taking off. Multi-year move ahead. Man, buddy's back after the break. 
It is time. It's time for the late round. Man, man, man. That's where I tell you we're going to round fire. You tend to stand the dollar. Tell you about it. So, the beer. And of course, talk question. It's number step. It's waiting on your planet, Sam. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skiing down. It's time for the lightning round. It's Dave in Virginia. Dave. U.S. Navy Buddha. Ford. The- Okay, let me tell you something. Ford, all we care about is not the EV cars or the Mustang. We care about the dividend, and I need to be sure they can pay it. Right now, I'm saying be careful. Dale in California. Dale! Yay, hello, Kramer. Hey, Dale, what's this up? Is like wild. Yeah, this is like wildfire. I bought in January at 7, sold half at 14 and half at 20 bucks. Now in October, I bought another batch at 5. I sold half already at 750. My question is, can lightning strike twice? Can I see 15 or 20 bucks for the second half of what I got? What, for PG&E? Uh, you got it. Uh, I think you're playing too close to the best this time. I think, you know, lightning struck once, and that was good enough, and I would not stick around too long. John in New York. John! Jim. John, you're up. Go ahead, John. Good, good evening, Jim. How are you doing? I, I want I'm to, doing uh, well. How about you? Good, good. I wanted your perspective on a, a company called Ameren, uh... All right, everybody on my Twitter file, it seems loves this stock. I love the, I, look, I love cardiovascular disease, but I don't love it. I mean, like, I kind of don't want it, but I think it's, ba- I think that this company's doing great things. I'm a little more conservative, which is why I like Novartis for that situation. Andrew in New Jersey. Andrew. Booyah, James. Booyah, Andrew. Brookfield Renewable Partners. This thing has been on fire. I mean, literally and figuratively. I've got to tell you, up here with a four and a half percent yield, I think you can go a little bit further. But I mean, honest to God, I mean, this thing has gotten very expensive, and I don't. So therefore, I can't push it hard. Andrew in New York, Andrew. Hey Jim, I wanted to get your opinion on American Towers. It- I say buy American Tower. I know the tower stocks have given up a little bit of late. I think that that's the mistake. This one's down 30 from its high. I think you should own American Tower MT and that, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. While we're out here in San Francisco, I wanted to check in on Square, the financial technology company with a stock that's become a battleground over the past year. See, Square's gotten into the habit of reporting better than expected numbers, but then disappointing investors by leaving its guidance somewhat unchanged. And that's why the stock plunged from the low 80s in the beginning of August to the low 60s by the end of August. And it's been stuck in the high 50s, mid 60s ever since. I think the stock can make a comeback because the fundamentals are sound especially now that they've sold their money-losing food delivery business, Caviar, to DoorDash. Now, earlier today, we spoke to Square's new CFO. Her name is Amrita Ahuja. Take a look. Well, first, it's very exciting to have you on because Square is such an exciting company. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here, Jim. Well, first, a lot of people think of you as the little white reader. Over time, you've become maybe the most powerful small to medium-sized business engine ecosystem you have it didn't take you long that's right we've been around for 10 years now and we've grown tremendously in the time that we've been serving our customers our mission is economic empowerment which means we build products services and tools that help people participate in the economy it started with payments and with the little white reader but we've now got over 20 products on the seller side that help people start run and grow their business including things like square capital where we can extend loans to businesses, loyalty, marketing, vertical points of sale, 
um, a number of different services that help people grow their business. And our mission is very aligned with our customers in that as they grow, we grow. I was getting some flowers for the office here uh, downstairs. Very nice woman. And I said, oh, geez, you're using Squish. Because, well, why wouldn't I? And I thought that was a really interesting answer. You wouldn't have gotten why wouldn't I five years ago. It's part of the firmament. That's right. Our job is to make these products and services seamless for our customers. So we take the work out of their hands in integrating them and make it easy for them to onboard new employees and easy for them to take on more of the work that they would be doing so that they can grow their business. Now, you've got the most wildly fast-growing, uh, I don't even want to call it just an app, it's bigger than that, uh, Cash, square cash. That's the, right. the numbers here are extraordinary. Are they still growing the way they have all year? Cash App is growing tremendously. In just three years, we went from no monetization to over $600 million in annual run rate from a revenue perspective. And um, we, in, 20, in Q3, grew over 115% year over year. It's incredible. We now have millions and millions of customers, over 15 million monthly actives as of December of last year, and have grown since then. Cash App is a service that helps people manage their money. It helps them send, spend, save, and store their money. And now, also invest. We're rolling out a new product just this week. The velocity of product invention on this team has been incredible. Well, I want to talk to you about the uh, access for stock investing cash app. Yeah. I have been furious a lot of the companies. They don't want to listen because they've catered to big firms. Uh, the big institutions want high dollar amount stocks. They want Amazon at 1700 because they don't want to have to pay more pay cut currency. You know, they, look, they have to do a per share is the way you have to pay to buy stocks. Right. Individuals want they don't want to spend $1,700, then they have to buy a fractional share. But that's what you provide. That's exactly right. What we see is that 50% of U.S. households don't own equities today because it's hard to set up a brokerage account and because some of the most successful stocks are very expensive right. stocks. On a dollar so, amount. Buy, on a dollar amount, exactly, right. on a per share basis. Right. The Apples, Amazons, Googles of the world are in the hundreds or thousands of dollars. And with Cash App, you can get started with as little as one dollar and get to participate in this massive wealth creation that's the stock market. Now, I also know that people have said, Jim, you used to have Sarah Fryer on. Stock is stalled since Sarah left. She works at Nextdoor. She's unbelievable. We all, we all revere Sarah. Sarah's great. Uh, I've seen the stock come back of late. And the thing that most impresses me, I was going over what most of the analysts said. There was a per- perception that the quarter wasn't uh, better than expected. It was a legitimate beat and raise. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people realize that... You actually, once Caviar, which is the food delivery company, dropped off, you have accelerated revenue growth. Well, in 2019, for our two large and thriving ecosystems, cash and seller, we expect to do over $2 billion in adjusted revenue, growing 46% year over year. So these are large ecosystems, and they're growing at scale. And what the Caviar transaction enables us to do is to increase our focus and increase our investment in these two ecosystems. We see three horizons of growth ahead. The first horizon where we are today is scaling these ecosystems, bringing more customers on board, more quality customers into our ecosystems, seller and cash. The second is around optimizing the cross-sell, surfacing all of these other products that we can offer 
our customers. The third horizon is around connecting the two ecosystems. What are the things that we can uniquely do at Square now that we see both sides of the counter, the buyer and the seller? These are powerful and profound opportunities for us to explore over the coming years. Well, then you're in the unique position seeing both sides to be able to give me a sense of how the American consumer's doing. I know you're moving international, too. I don't mean mm-hmm. just give that short trip, mm-hmm. but very few people have the pulse of small and medium-sized business. Are we doing okay? From what we see, we see billions of signals on a daily basis on the seller business and obviously also see individuals in cash app. And from what we see, we see very steady um, signals. We see low loan loss rates, very steady loan loss rates across our seller business and our capital business. Oh, well, that's good news because so many people are worried about a recession. When I listen to what you guys are doing, I think the small, medium-sized business is doing pretty darn good. And that really is, it's true, it's cliche, but it is the engine of the U.S. economy. That's right, and that's what we want to continue to serve. Thank you so much. That's Amrita Awuja, and she's Square's CFO. And I've got to tell you, you know I think Square's terrific here in the 60s. I think it should be bought. Stay with me. Didn't take much for everyone to give up a home veto, did it? One, geez, one couple of month period, and it wasn't so good. So people are tossing it out. I say wait three days and then buy Home Depot. Why not buy it tomorrow? Because we got to see what Lowe's says. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow.